when I was in seminary, my preaching professor's name was Al Faisal. Al was kind of an older guy, kind of a reserved fella. Been in public radio for a while, you know, doing kind of like local stuff and that kind of thing. And then God had called him into ministry. And eventually he had wound up being a, a professor of preaching at Southwestern Seminary down in Fort Worth, Texas. And so I had them both for preaching class, which is where they taught you how to put sermons together. And then I also had them for preaching lab, which is where they taught you how to deliver sermons. So if you don't like my sermons, it's his fault. I can give you his address. You can write him a note. You'll be all set. But, you know, there's a lot of things he taught me in that class I don't do anymore. Maybe I should, but I don't. But I, I, this, this, I remember him telling us one time, and, and I think the context of it was he was, he was talking about how the challenge of connecting with your audience, with the congregation as you're preaching, you know, and he's talking through some of that. And he, he spoke of an experience where he had gone to this church as a, I think he was, it was a very small kind of country church. He was new in ministry, and he, and he got out there, and, and um, he was standing at the door after the service, and this older woman was walk, walking out, and she said, you know, she said, the previous pastor had been there for a long time. She said, Brother Bob always parted his hair on the other side. I'm just never going to get used to you. And she walked out the door. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I'm like, that, that, that's bizarre. That can't be true, you know. That's, that's bizarre, you know. And, but it was true, you know. And I, I don't know about the whole challenge of connecting with how that speaks to me, but one of the lessons I learned from that statement was that for many of us, let me meet for all of us, change is hard. For some of us, little things like which side of your head do you part your hair on or being thankful that you have enough hair to be able to part it in one direction or another. I mean, that, that's just minor stuff for some of us, but change fundamentally is hard for us. And, and in particular, I, I think it's, you know, what, there's some change that's forced on us, right? You have a spouse that serves in the military. They get deployed. You just got to deal with it. You know, you, you have two kids, and now you're going to have a third. You weren't really planning with it. You, you just deal with it. There's some, things, there's some things you just can't afford. Some of you have gone through major health issues. Or you've lost a spouse or a child or whatever. There's some change that's forced upon us that we can't ignore. We just have to deal with. But I think there's a different type of change that's much harder for all of us, and that's what I call discretionary change. This is the stuff that we don't have to change. We're not forced to change but we really probably should change. I mean, to see how difficult it is, all you got to do is go to Barnes & Noble and just look at the shelves full of books. You know, how to change your diet, how to change your exercise, how do you change your lifestyle, how to change your relationships. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? And all of that is a living testimony to the fact that change is hard for us. And I think that that idea, that conviction underlies much of why the Apostle Paul writes what he does to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, down through the 21st verse of chapter 5. I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses seven, beginning with verse 17. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, our text today will start on page 995. And, and we'll get over onto page 996 as we go. Just very quickly, just kind of, can I rewind the tape just a little bit and kind of remind us where we've been and kind of where, where we're getting to in this point? The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul's been kind of laying out a, a foundational theology. And, and that is that God is, is bringing everything back together 
in Christ to him. I know it's big lofty terms, but he starts out in chapter 1 talking about the way that God has blessed us. And, and these aren't necessarily the type of blessings that we usually think about. You know, I know on Mother's Day there were posts on Facebook like, so thankful for my husband who took the kids to the park today so I could take a nap. What a blessing. That's not the kind of blessings that Paul's talking about. And he's talking about the big stuff like, you know, the blessings of, of being adopted and being forgiven, being redeemed, being chosen, being commissioned, being given the Holy Spirit. He's talking about those big pieces and then how God has using those blessings to redeem Gentiles and Jews together as they're reconciled to God. He's summing everything up together. And he's praying that they'll be the kind of people who can experience that. And since that's God's activity, he begins in chapter 4 to talk about what it is that we should do in response to that how we should change. And the theme through the rest of the book is going to be the idea of living worthy of the calling that we have, should receive. Verses 1 through 16 in chapter 4 deals with how the community, the church, should live worthily of that calling that God has for us. And the theme is unity. The way that the community of faith lives in a manner that's worthy of what God has done for us in Christ, the way he's blessed us in Christ, based upon who God is, is to live in unity. But in, chapter, in verse 17 of chapter 4, he turns to us as individuals. How, how is it that you and I as individual believers should live in a manner worthy of the calling, the gift, the presence of Christ that God has given us? And as we read through this, I want you to notice the therefores. I'm going to make a few comments on some things as we go along, but I want you to notice the therefores that develop. Because it's like Paul's kind of repeating himself. He's trying to say the same thing in a slightly different way to kind of get the message across to us about the challenge of change. Therefore, he starts in verse 17, I say this and I testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Let me paraphrase that. You should no longer live as those who have no faith in God in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a, with a desire, you might say an insatiable desire for more and more. To give you an example of how they got, become so dark and so callous, how they had given themselves over so fully to impurity, is that they, the, the city of Ephesus was home to one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple to Diana, the temple to Artemis, who was a goddess of love. And they had built this incredible structure on the proceeds of prostitution. And they considered that to be an acceptable form of worship to God. Does that sound kind of darkened to you? A little twisted? A little callous? You know, that, that they had taken the indulging, you know, just indulging their sexual passions, if you will, and, just, and they had turned that into a religion, and they somehow offered it up to where God is being good. That's how twisted they were. Paul said, you know, don't live like that anymore. He says, but that's not how you learned about the Messiah, verse 20. Assuming that you have heard and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. In other words, I'm assuming you guys know Christ by faith. You took off your former way of life, 
the old man that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and you're being renewed in the spirit of your minds, and you put on the new man, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. Since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't let the devil, don't give the devil an opportunity. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. He has something to give away. No rotten talk should come from your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need in order to give grace to those who hear. And, and don't grieve God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, who sealed you for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, insult, and slander must be removed from you, along with all wickedness, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, okay, we had one therefore already. Therefore, verse 17, I say this in but you should no longer walk as a Gentile walks. Now we have another one. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and a fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. And coarse and foolish talking or crude joking, they're just not suitable. But instead, you should give thanks. For know and recognize this, no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. Now, the idea there is that if there's anything in our lives that we place above being obedient to Christ, we're idolaters. If, if you have a place in your life that says, I, you know, I know what God wants or whatever, but this is just the way I'm going to do it, th- then that's idolatry. Whether it has to deal with your possessions and materialism and greed, whether it has to do with your sexual identity and your sexual passion and how you express that stuff, because that's the stuff, impurity in any kind of form. If those things are more important, you say, God, you can't touch this stuff then you're an idolater. And the Scripture says you have no inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. So he says, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for because of these things, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. There was a, a beginning teaching in the church that somehow or another you could separate your body from your spirit and you could do what you want with your body. And they said, you know, Don't let people deceive you with those empty arguments. He says, Therefore do not become their partners. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So here's another therefore. Walk as children of light. The fruit, for the fruit of the light results in goodness, righteousness, and truth, and discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is even shameful. It's shameful to even mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made clear. For what makes everything clear is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. We, we don't really know the source of this. There's some things, maybe it's a paraphrase of a scripture. There's others think that this may have been a, a kind of a, a, an early Christian hymn, maybe something they sang in relationship to a baptismal experience, you know, kind of rising up out of the water and et cetera, and the Messiah will say. Verse 15, pay careful attention then to how you walk 
not as unwise people, but as wise. Now, in some of your translations, you have the word therefore, and it's really kind of in there in the Greek. It says, therefore, pay careful attention. So we have another name. Therefore, pay careful attention how you walk. Live with wisdom, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. In other words, don't find joy in, in things that are that is temporary, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks for everything, always to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And we're going to pick up with verse 21 next week. You know, that these last couple, three verses, you know, yeah, if you were to ask me about why is our worship kind of laid out the way it is, the feel of our worship, I tell you, on one end, it's missional because God has been able to use it to reach people, so we keep doing it that way. The other way I tell you is based right on this. There's just a spirit of joy and of celebration that's there when the people of God get together. And, and, and our services ought to have that feel of just being alive and joyful and celebrity. The kind of things that make you want to clap like you did just a few minutes ago. You know, but, so you got Paul here. He, he, he's, he's talked to the community. You've got to be unified. If you're going to live a life that's worthy of what God's done for you in Christ, you're going to be unified. Now here he says you as the people of God, the individuals, you have to be purified. You know, you've got to be changed on the inside. And, and it's like Paul says it, then he backs up and wants to say it in a different way, and then he backs up and he says it in a different way, and then one more time he backs up and he says it in another way. You know, he starts out, first of all, he says, you know, don't, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't live like unbelievers. Live like believers. Therefore, because of what God's done for you in Christ, don't live the way you used to live. Now live differently because you have faith in Christ. Live as a believer. Then as he gets to the next step, he says, therefore, now, now he runs through all that. He goes, all right, if, if you don't get it that way, let me put it this way. Because of all these blessings that God's given you, the way God, Christ has reconciled you to the Father, bringing Jews and Greeks, because all that stuff, be imitators of God. Maybe that'll speak to you. And then he runs through what it means to be an imitator of God. Then he gets down to, 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 into chapter 5, and he's talking about, he says, you know what? If that doesn't communicate, it's not about you know, living by faith or being imitators of God. How about walking as children of the light? Therefore, walk as children of the light. And if that doesn't ring your bell, let's talk about the fact, live as somebody who's wise instead of somebody who's unwise. Because the days out here are evil. And you need to have, so it's, it's, he, he kind of talks about it, backs up, talks about it in a different way. Backs up, talks about it in a different way. Backs up, talks about it in a different way. They're all dealing with the same subject. And it is how you and I change spiritually. Now, Paul's passionate for us to change. I mean, he described his, his connection with one of the churches. He said, you know what? He said, my, my, my feelings for you and my desire for you to, to be changed in Christ, to move to the fullness of the stature of Christ, it's, 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 it feels like I'm in labor pains. You know, he said, and, and, I, and, and he has this passion for God's people. And, and I think he, he kind of starts, backs up, starts again, start, backs up, starts again. I think he does all that because, one, he understands that change for us is hard. Paul's sitting in prison. He, he's been on restricted access for probably over four years at this point. He's sitting in a Roman prison. He spent two years in a Jerusalem jail in Palestine, traveled, you know, by boat, got to Rome. He's been sitting in jail in Rome. He's writing to this church in Ephesus. The report's coming in. Yeah. 
you know, the churches are doing kind of okay, but they got lots of little problems and little, some big problems in them. And, and he's just thinking, why is this so hard for the people of God? He understands that change is hard for us. And, and so he writes, and he, and, he, and he deals with it once, he deals with it twice, he deals with it three times, he deals with it four times, you know, getting at how it is that you and I change on the inside. But, but on top of that, I think Paul's aware of this, and I think this is where his last take is, where he, he says, you know, you need to live with wisdom. You know, he said, because the days are evil. And maybe you can look at it a different, another way to say, you know what, you need to live as children's light because there's a lot of darkness. And I, I think what Paul's trying to communicate to us is that if you and I are not intentionally and specifically committed to spiritual change, we're not going to change. Doesn't happen by accident. You, you got to have the days are evil. So if you're not if you're not intentionally trying to live with wisdom, then you're living foolishly. There is no in between point. The, the days are so dark that if you're not intentionally choosing to live with light, then you're living in partnership with the darkness. The, the challenge of change is not just to somehow know that it needs to happen, but it's actually being specifically and intentionally and passionately committed to a process of change. It just doesn't happen by accident. And it's hard. Amen? Anybody, you know, I mean... I, I'm not saying, hey, it's hard for you, easy for me. I mean, I, I, maybe I should preach this way today. You know, that way, you know, I, I fit way. It's hard for us. And, and the fact of the matter is, if we don't have, if we're not intentionally committed and have it as one of our major priorities in life, we just don't change spiritually. It takes that kind of effort. It takes that kind of intentionality. You know, and, and sometimes we get it, we're really hot, and, you know, we're moving along, lots of stuff happen, and other times we just seem to be kind of, you know, and Paul said, you know what, there is no in-between. You know, there's, there's wise living and there's foolish living. There's darkness, there's light. There's flesh, and then there's a new side. There's no in-between. So unless you've specifically chosen and are trying to live this way, so how do you change? And, and Paul gives us a strategy for this process of change. And, and, and I'm going to give it to you in, in very simple terms, but I, I think it's I think it's biblically right on. Even though it may be very kind of modern language, that kind of stuff, overly simplistic, I think biblically it's right on. Paul said, you know, the strategy you need to have in order to grow spiritually is one, stop. Stop something. Second, get help. And third, start doing something new. Stop, get help. Start. You don't have a sermon notes today. Maybe listen to say this with me. Stop. Get help. Start something new. How does Paul put it? Put off the old self. Right. Then he says, "Be renewed in your mind. Let God help you. Let God's people. Let God's word help you from the outside. Then put on the new self. Stop. Get help. Start something new." That's what it takes to change spiritually. Now, it's interesting as you look at the tenses of these verbs about put off the old self. And just so you know specifically where we're looking at here, you know, we're looking here that 
up in uh, verses 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 uh, of, of, of chapter 4. You know, this, I, the, the verbs put on, off and put on are actually aorist tense verbs in the Greek, which that means that those are past tense. This is something that's already happened, right? When you and I hear of the Messiah and we respond in faith, and we, are, we receive God's grace, as he's talked about in chapter 2, you and I become new creatures. The old is, is gone, the new has come. Any man who's in Christ is a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. We've put off, we've put on the new Christ. Okay? We're already changed. But it's interesting this word being renewed in your mind is actually a, a, is a present indicative, which means this is an action that needs to happen and needs to keep happening. Okay, so we need to have our minds renewed. We need to have the way that we think changed over and over and over again. And so what I think Paul is saying to us, what God is saying to us through Paul is that the way that you become who you already are in Christ is to stop, get help, and start doing something new. God has blessed you with every blessing in the spiritual in the spiritual place. You got it all. You ask who you are. The way we become, the way we come to experience, the way we change into who we already are in Christ, is to have our minds renewed by stop getting help and starting something new. Now, let's take a, a little bit of a look at this. Follow, let's, let's, let's chase this out just a little bit in verse 25 down through verse 32. There's some stops and some starts. Verse 25, stop lying. Start speaking the truth. Each one to his neighbor because we are members one of another. I can't tell you why this was at the top of his list. I don't know if the church at Ephesus had, had a, a lying problem or not. I don't know if this was something that was occurring across the church as a whole, whatever. But he starts with says, stop lying, start telling the truth. I think that's true not only like in the facts of our lives, but also in terms of our theology. Secondly, he says, you got options when it comes to being angry. Stop being angry in a sinful manner and start being angry in a righteous manner. Well, what does that mean? You know, and, and he goes on to say, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. R- you know, righteous anger, I mean, if, if, it just, if it just burns you up inside and creates a passion that there are people starving to death in today's world, that's righteous anger. And you can follow through on that and do something with it. If it just, if it just, if, if it just makes you angry just that, that people are still being sold into sexual slavery today, that's righteous anger. But unrighteous anger, sinful anger, is, is anger that is not redemptive in nature. Our, our anger needs to be focused on trying to restore that which is broken, not to tear down that which is already wounded. And so he says you need to put off the wrong kind of anger. You need to Put on the right kind of anger. You need to stop being angry this way and start being angry about this kind of stuff. He moves on from there. He says, first of all, you know, next he says, stop stealing. 
Stop stealing. I mean, the ancient world had a theft problem. Two places it occurred, I mean, like today's world happens everywhere, but the two dominant places were the marketplace. Everybody went to the marketplace to get what they needed for the day. It was a place of bustle. It's always amazing to me when I go to Rwanda how many people are walking around the market. And that's because they have no refrigerators, no place to store stuff, that kind of stuff. Everything they need for every single meal, they got to buy every single day. And so there's just, just people milling everywhere, you know? And they're cooking stuff up and chopping chickens and doing all kinds of stuff, you know, in, in the market, you know? And they had a problem. It was also the bathhouse. It was, part of every Roman city was to have a bathhouse, you know? You, they, they didn't get to just kind of get up and go into their ensuite bathroom, right, and take a shower in the morning, you know, you know the way they, got, they went down in the bathhouse. And so you're in there, and, and there wasn't any padlock to put on your locker, you know, that you could wear the key around your thing, and you're off. You, went to, you come out, your stuff's gone. Stop stealing. And what does he say on the other hand? He said, he said, instead, get yourself in a place where you're in a position to give to other people. He doesn't just say, go get a job and take care of yourself. He says, go get a job. So you have enough to be able to give to other people. Stop stealing. Start giving. Ministering to other people. Then he picks up with here and says, All, um, no rotten talk should come from your mouth. Some of your translations have the idea of no unwholesome or hurtful words need to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building people up. So we need to get from the place where we're satisfying our anger to where we're using our words to be a blessing to others. And then he kind of incorporates a whole bunch here in verses 31 and 32. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, insult, and slander must be removed from you along with all wickedness. The difference there between anger and wrath is some of us have a, a flash temper. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean I, you know, when, when I burn, uh, you know, my brush pile, Usually do that every year. Sometimes every couple of, couple of years, you know. If I can't get it going, one of the best things to throw on it is an old Christmas tree. You, you ever done that? I mean, man, if you get the fire going a little bit, when that thing sort of whoosh, you know, just go, it kind of goes out, uh, you know. That's rat. That's 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 what the quick temper he's talking about, man. Just not a whole lot, but it just sets you off and you just go, you know. That's one type of anger. The other is. The, the wrath here is just kind of a sustained, nurtured kind of, I've been mad at you for years kind of stuff, you know. This year I, I burned up a lot of stuff, and we had cut up a couple of trees, and it was kind of crud wood, so I just thrown the chunks from the, the, the pieces of the trunk into the fire, and they were on the bottom. thing burned all day for two days, and they're still there. They're charred, but they're still there. That's what he's talking about with wrath. It's just something that can burn and burn and burn and burn. You got to put that stuff aside. Instead, that's where you stop. What you start is being kind, being compassionate, being forgiven, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Stop and start. Well, where do you get this get help piece? Well, look at verse 30. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to help us. John, Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. The Spirit comes into our lives to direct us into what to stop and what to start in our lives. In, in uh, Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about the fact that the, it's the Holy Spirit who 
knows the mind and the thoughts of God, and because the Holy Spirit's within us, he's communicating those thoughts, those ideas, God's truth to us from the inside out. And so he, he said, you need to open up yourself. Now, we grieve the Holy Spirit when you and I resist him. You know, when, when, when the Spirit brings a spirit of conviction upon us, tries to guide us, and we just say, uh-uh. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. We're making the Holy Spirit sad. We're, we're, we're not responding to God's help to us. So as you and I open ourselves up to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he draws us into God's Word. He draws us into community with God's people. He draws us to pray. And we get the help that we need to change. Stop. Get help from God and start something new. That's God's script for us to change. That the way in you and I can live lives that are lives that are marked by faith, lives that are will imitate the nature of God, lives that are marked by the light of God, lives that are marked by the wisdom of God, is to stop, get help, and start something new. That's what God's asking us to do. And that's the only way you and I change. Now, why is Paul so passionate about this? He doesn't tell us exactly. I'm going to give you a couple of my ideas. One is, is he, he, he just understands just how globally, how cosmically this is so important. Believe it or not, you and I as individuals and you and I collectively as a church are the instruments that God's going to use to change the world. So the the issue is, what kind of a tool are we? Right? And, and he knows that if, if we're not unified as a community, and we're not changed as individuals, we're a pretty cruddy tool. Okay? We're not, mar- we're not presenting any kind of marks of reconciliation. We're just a cruddy tool. Until the first service said, for Christmas this year, I, I, you know, I think I was in a grab bag swap kind of thing. My wife got this nice little hammer with flowers on it. You know, so, you know, I, in my garage, I got, I got a big sledgehammer. I got a big three-pound hammer. I got a big 16-ounce, you know, framing thing. I got a 12-ounce hammer, whatever. And she's got this teeny-weeny little, you know, you can unscrew the handle and little screwdrivers come out and just like one after another. It's, you know, it's, it's really cute, you know. Now, it's a perfect tool if you're trying to put up some tacks in the wall to hang a per- picture on. But I have this old two-stall horse barn out behind our house that we haven't, I haven't done a thing to in the 20 years that we've lived there. And from the front, it doesn't look too bad. You walk in, there's no roof left or anything else. You know, it's, just, it's just a mess. Now, if I took my wife's teeny little hammer out there to start knocking it down, how, how's that going to work? Might lose some of the flowers off of it, but I'm not sure how many of the boards I'd knock down, you know. I mean, if if we're not changed, the world's not going to be changed. Now, I I know God's sovereign, all that kind of thing, but God has chosen in his sovereignty to use you and I, and if we're cruddy tools, the work's going to be a lot harder. And so Paul's passionate about it. I mean, he's given his life. He's sitting in jail. He's got all the credibility. He's ready to die for his faith. And he's, he's, he's just passionate about what God wants to do in the world with the message of Jesus Christ. And the church, we who make it up, are the answer. And so he's, but there's another aspect. 
Paul, Paul loves us. He loves the Ephesians. He loved the Colossians, the Philippians. He, and, and he loved all those who were going to follow after him. And, and he just had a passion for us. He, you know, his, his concern for us felt like a burden, like he was giving labor pains, right? And, and he just doesn't want us to settle for anything but God's best. You know, um, I heard a story a long time ago. I, it may be apocryphal, but I, I think it's a true story, but it may be apocryphal. But perhaps some of you have heard this before. And the story's told about a, a father-in-law who went to his son-in-law. His son-in-law was, was a builder, a little slow on work. He said to him, he said, you know what, I want you to build a house for me. He had a piece of land, and he said, okay, you know, let's agree on how big we're going to build it and how much we're going to pay for it and all that kind of stuff. And they lay it all out, they design it, and the son-in-law starts in on it. And, you know, as he's going along, he's like, you know what, if I buy these windows instead of these windows, I can save some money, I can put some more money in my pocket. I buy these cabinets instead of these cabinets. I can save some money. I can put more money in my pocket. You know, if, if I do this kind of flooring instead of that kind of flooring. And all the way through, he's, he's just, he's cutting corners. D- doesn't look terrible, but it's just not great. Gets the whole house done. He's ready to turn it over. His father-in-law comes out, and he, he goes and says, the house is all done. Here are your keys. And the father-in-law says, just keep them. The house is yours. You know, th- there are ways in which that's, th- Paul didn't want us to do that. God's, God's just lined up the best material in the world for us to build life with. But somehow or another, we want to keep going over here and pulling stuff off of the junk heap. And the life that we're settling for is not what God wants for us. And Paul doesn't want that to be the case. So, so if you're going to change, if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the calling that God has on you, you got to stop, you got to get help from God, and you got to start doing things differently. So, so the question I have for us today as we kind of wrap up is when you think about the last three to six months of your life, what have you stopped lately? How have you gotten help lately? And what have you started doing lately? If you have a hard time finding the answers to those questions, you probably do not have a God-given intentional strategy and commitment to change. And we're not changing. The other reason you might not be able to answer that question is because you've never really met the Messiah yet. And I invite you to meet the Messiah today. If you never heard about him, you don't understand who Jesus is and how this whole thing works and and I don't have time to go into all the little wonderful theological pieces that fit into it, is, but is that we were just separated from God because we were doing life our way, not his way. And had it gone on from the very first generation to today, and God stepped out of heaven in the person of his son and died in our place so that we can have a relationship with him that lasts forever. And that happens by faith. And you can meet the Messiah today by choosing to believe in him. How are you changing? What are you starting? Because you've stopped something and you've gotten help. Let's pray together. God, I think many of us today are grateful that you're patient with us. 
we hear a message today like this, and, and, and I stand with these here, and we understand that the pace of change in our lives is just way short of what you've given us in Jesus. Father, I confess to you that, that I could be far more proactive in what I'm stopping, how I'm getting help, and what I could start doing. Father, I think I probably represent many of us here today. God, I'm thankful that you've made it possible for us to change, that you work with us in changing us, that, you, you, that you're passionate about us being changed, and you're ready to help us now as we turn to you. So God, we reach out today, and we stop procrastinating our spiritual journey, we reach out to your help. We want to start changing because of our faith in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come and lead us in a song of celebration.